Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. What does it take to be a good leader or a great team member? One important aspect of this is the capacity to be able to connect with others, especially those who are different from us. Not only to ensure an optimally functioning organization, but to create teams that collaborate together with a passion and a purpose and to establish psychologically safe environments for individuals where everyone can feel at ease with making their voice heard and count. And this episode's guest teaches exactly how to make this happen. Latonya Wilkins is the founder of The Change Coaches and specializes in coaching executives on leading below the surface to build psychologically safe relationships with their teams across differences. She's a sought-after keynote speaker and has inspired audiences all over the world. She has worked with leaders at many well-known companies, including Google, GE, The New York Times, and several nonprofits. And she's also the author of Leading Below the Surface, How to Build Real and Psychologically Safe Relationships with People Who Are Different from You. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Latanya, thank you so much for joining us today on the Superhumanize podcast. I really was looking forward to this conversation. Welcome. Great. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. You wrote the book, Leading Below the Surface, How to Build Real and Psychologically Safe Relationships with People Who Are Different From You. Why is it so important to connect with people, especially those who are different from us? Yeah, that's a really, you started off with a deep question right away. This is going to be a fun conversation. Yeah. One of the inspirations behind the book is I, one of the things I should tell you is I always hated DEI, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, because it didn't work. And one of the reasons why it didn't work is because we weren't really focused on building the real relationships with people who are different from us. We were more focused on just training and just very transactional things and forcing people to do things that they really didn't want to do. DEI never really helped me. And I was supposed to be the person that helped when I was working in a corporation. And one of the things that I learned growing up is I was around people like my grandmother, who was amazing with building these types of different relationships. And when you can do that, there's a sense of realness. There's a sense of psychological safety. There's a sense of equity. And so all of these things are, are really important in the world, especially if we want to move it forward in that DEI space. Mm-hmm. And you just touched upon it, the psychologically safe spaces, environments. What does that exactly mean and how do we create them? Yeah. So psychological safety is one of the most under, most understood concepts out there. I think it's a hot concept it's a trendy word, but what does it actually really mean? It means like, I want everyone to to just imagine 
the last person in one of the organizations that you worked with that seemed like they could do no wrong. Like they, they might have make mistakes. They might speak up. They might speak up to the most important person at the table and they seem to get away with it. But if you were, if you would have done that, or if you would speak up at the bottom of your heart and deep inside, that wouldn't be treated the same way or regarded the same way. That psychological safety, the first person that's able to do that, that I just explained, the former person has that psychological safety. And what that means is this person can make mistakes at work without repercussions. They could bring their whole selves to work. They could speak up when they need to. And fortunately, everyone doesn't have that. I would say in organizations, when I'm working with teams, not even half of the people have psychological safety. We're lucky if half of them do on the team. And so that's what it looks like. Some of the benefits, obviously, more innovation, more people feel like more of a sense of belonging when they feel psychologically safe. People can do their best work. They feel more valued when they're psychologically safe. And all that thing, all those things contribute to a better culture. I would imagine that feeling like you're psychologically safe at a place, at a space in your life where you're spending a lot of your actual life's time, we spend a lot of our time at work, that having that would mitigate a lot of the stressors that so many people are experiencing today. If you feel psychologically unsafe in a large part of your life, you feel like you can't make yourself heard or speak truth, that would be cause serious burnout, possibly also some psychological uh, disorders or things that mm-hmm. people would deal with. So it, it sounds to me like this is vastly important. So how do we actually create these psychologically safe environments? Ooh, you're coming in with all the questions today. It's hard and you really have to do it over time. I posted about this on LinkedIn earlier this week, as there's been so much luck in the world we're in the middle of a war. We've had a couple mass shootings in the U.S. here recently. There's a lot of mental health crises. And so psychological safety and empathy are so important. And to develop the, both of those concepts or access both of those concepts I talk about in Leading Below the Surface, it has to be an ongoing thing. And one of the best ways to do that is in your one-on-ones. Mm-hmm. And so all of you that are listening whether you're an entrepreneur, you have one-on-ones with your employees. If you're a solopreneur, you have one-on-ones with clients or partners. If you are a manager, you have one-on-ones with your employees. And so it's in those one-on-ones, ask people what their challenges are. Ask people like what they don't like about their jobs. Ask people what gets on their nerves. And don't punish them for those answers, even if you don't like them. And just play that back to them. Just listen to them. And through that, you slowly and slowly build psychological safety. And I know that sounds like a long, onerous process, but that's how it happens. It happens through day-to-day shifts, day-to-day rituals, where you are showing people constantly, hey, you you could say this thing, you could make this criticism about the CEO, but that doesn't mean your career is going to get derailed. I'm going to go tell them. You're going to, you're going to hear that. And you're going to, you're going to instead be more curious about how you can help instead of criticizing the comment. So that's one way that you can do it, but that's pretty much it. It's any type, any type of way that you approach this, it's going to have to be an iterative process. Yes, that makes total sense. I've been fascinated as of late with learning more about nonviolent communication. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Yeah. And that for me, you grow up, you have your caretakers, your parents who of course do the best that they know, given the tools that they've been given. I've discovered about myself a lot of things that I, that were really enlightening and just this basic process of how to actually communicate certain things in a way that is non-judgmental, in a way where you speak from your heart, but based on observations and without blaming someone. I found it truly, it really shifted the ways in which I Mm -hmm. view and also now try to participate in conversations. Yes. Yep. And every time you apply that language, each time that's going to build up your psychological safety capital with that next person. So the Mm. more consistent that you are, the Mm -hmm. more that you're showing that you're not going to blow up, the more that you're showing that you are committed to this new way, that's how you're going to build that safety. Yes. Absolutely. And also taking, you know, responsibility for my own emotions instead of when I have get triggered for whatever reason, pointing my fingers at whoever is actually uh, communicating something to me. You mentioned your grandmother before, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. You said she had this great capacity of building relationships with all kinds of people. Where did that come from within her? How did she? She was just an incredible soul. I got really lucky. (laughs) I always say that I got extremely lucky and I'm extremely grateful. So I got lucky. Number one way I got lucky with her is she lived to 93 and her sisters also lived well into their nineties. So I had her around for a long time and it was like unheard of for someone of my age to still have their grandmother. So that was pretty neat. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I got lucky with is, so she migrated from the South Jackson, Mississippi, her great, her great grandmother was a slave. So she was still living in Jackson. She had four children. One was my mother and living in Jackson, Mississippi in the 1950s, my mother didn't want to drink from a colored fountain. It was after Emmett Till was killed and lynched, I should say, because it's more than killed. And so that my grandma migrated north because she was horrified of what was going to happen to my mother. My mother was done with the racism and these suppressive laws or oppressive laws. And so they moved up north um, and ended up in Iowa. And my grandma ended up being a cafeteria worker. And for 50 years, it was pretty neat story. And so all the kids knew her in town and they grew up with her. And when she first got there, a lot of her coworkers didn't look like her. You could probably imagine in this 1960s. And there's a photo I, I often show in my keynotes. It's all wrinkled up and tattered. And it's a photo of her and her friends from the schools. Back then, you could have a job. Everybody had a job for 50 years and they retired. And these women were her friends. It was beautiful. The grandchildren would come visit her when she got older. Um, she would talk to these women still on the phone long after she retired. Again, she lived until her 90s. A lot of them passed before her. But I remember when she, we were having our celebration of life and one of the children came up to me, one of the grandchildren, and she asked who I was and she said, Tanya. And she said, grandma really raised me. She was really great with this. And she, this woman couldn't have been more opposite of me. And so that's what I mean by my grandma just was really uh, good with just building relationships with people who are different from her. And at times when this was, these women were not supposed to be friends. <laughs> when you look at this picture and you see it, I'm like, wow, you, you talked, you went to each other's houses. That was like unheard of. And thinking about this, it, it's like it, that being lucky and having her and her showing me the power of that, mm-hmm. the power of that exposure, the power of um, really having these real relationships 
takes us so much further than any diversity program ever can. Absolutely. I That resonates deeply with me. I had the great fortune of growing up in different countries, spent the first three, four years of my life in Sierra Leone, West Africa, the next four years of my life in New Delhi in India, Spain, other countries. And I have always found it such a gift to be able at a very young age to learn from and actually to know people, not just to talk with, but to truly know people and their ways of life, which may have been very different from my own. And just to see the, the, the beauty in this diversity, the richness mm -hmm. of this world that we're living in, and all these amazing things that can happen when we reach out our hands towards each other, instead of pointing fingers or separating from each other. And thank you for sharing your family story. That's really mm -hmm. beautiful. And I can tell clearly your grandmother has had a huge influence in you and yeah. is living through you also. Oh, and, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And racism can be open and in your face. Oh, yeah. And yeah. racism can also be something that is people don't even realize that it's there, but it's a part of this construct that we're living in. And in, in your book, you're saying that studies have shown that people associate the uh, word leadership with white Western men. And oh, yeah. <laughs> this, this is a construct that keeps yeah. us all small. Yeah. How can we yes. start to change that? What can each and every one of us actively do? Yeah, it's the world's moving at the speed of light. And but leadership standards have not kept up. And so I would say that with this, what I was saying there is that, you know, competition over collaboration is still a value. Like meritocracy, I can't tell you how many people still challenge me on that. And it's such an inequitable process, but I get challenged so much on what do we do then? What do we do now? Like if we don't have meritocracy, well, you create equitable organizations and you create equitable ways to, to recognize people. And I think your question was, how do we move forward? Yes. How can we start to change that um, yeah. construct and what each and every one of us can do? Yeah. I think we have to first take a look honestly at our organizations. And I also have this in the book. I have some exercises in there that you can go through, but just evaluate your organization and, and see what how surface you are. I call that surface. Are you still caught in these dominant leadership standards? Are, do you just care about the world? Do you just care about like the outside, what other people see? Do you just care about looking good, like those surface things? Or are you okay with being open with, with the muck in your organizations as well? The second thing is, I, I would say, if you're listening to this and you're running an organization, you're working in an organization, take a look at your organizational values. And then also start reflecting on deeply on what are your, your values? Are you expected to conform again to, to competition, right? Are, is that how your team runs? Is it, do you have to travel 100% to be able to be successful? Do you have to have FaceTime and work 12 hours a day in order to be considered for promotions? So that's how we start. We start with thinking about these standards that are just not serving anyone anymore. Just think about the different generations in the workplace. That's just not how we work anymore. And so um, starting to go there and just take a look at, and I call this the dominant leadership standard, but any of the dominant leadership standards that you still have in your organization and start to work against those. I have a lot of research in my book that shows that these standards actually don't work and they're and it's making your organizations more toxic. So that's where you start is 
starting to just do an inventory of your values and your organizational values, your organization's values, and start to starting to think about how you can do the opposite of what you're doing and, and accepting that's not the way of leading anymore. Excellent, Latanya. Thank you for this. And I think it, what's also so vastly important is even from a purely pragmatic standpoint, even if you don't care about people, but you want your organization, your company to work well, but you want people to feel good and feel happy and feel included. And part of that is also to feel like you're belonging. You feel you're psychologically in a safe environment. You feel like you're acknowledged for what you bring, your particular gift, talent, work, and you also feel like you belong. How can organizations, how can leaders create a culture of belonging. Yeah. And, and I was talking about this morning in another interview, but first let me tell you a little bit about the metaphor that I use for belonging. Mm-hmm. And and then, the, then this will help you all figure out how to create this. Because again, belonging is another term that's misunderstood. It's not a zero sum game. It's not, if these people belong, then that takes some away from me. No, no, it's nothing like that. But everyone imagine that your team is a table. Okay. And everybody on your team has a seat at that table. Okay. So if you belong, you could pick your seat at that table and people want you in that seat. And when you're not in that seat, people miss you when you don't, when you belong. So whenever you leave that seat to go wherever to eat lunch or whatever, people are going to miss you. And they're going to, they're going to want your opinion. They're going to want you to come back so that you can contribute. No one tries to steal that seat. Mm-hmm. No one tries to repaint that seat. Mm-hmm. No one tries to put a cushion on that seat that you don't like. That is your seat. And every time that you belong, because when you come back, you're like, oh, there's my seat. It's still there. And there's people waiting for me to come back to that seat. That's how you know that you belong. And so with how do you get people to know that they belong? Or how do you create that culture of belonging? You create seats for people. You create that sense of interdependence with the team. You create that, you, you, you carve out unique value for people and you make sure that your team knows what those are and you become reliant on those things. You accept those differences, right? And those differences are so important actually to the point that you can't function without them. And so that's what belonging is and creating that is a couple of things to help you get there. Number one is think about the seat and what they bring to the table. Number two, practice empathy with them, access that so you can understand what these things are, like what is in that chair or what that chair brings to the table. Number two, psychological safety, like we just talked about. And number three, a concept I call real leadership. Real leadership is an alternative type of archetype, relatable, equitable, aware, and loyal. And it's, again, throwing away those old standards and coming in with more real leadership standards. I love that. Something else that really interests me is the, you've talked about the three biases that hold people back, whether it's at the workplace or in their own life. Could you talk a little bit more about that, Latonya? Yeah. So I talk about the terrible three and they're terrible, but we all face them. We all are victims of the terrible three. And these were the biases. I picked the three that I see the most destroying workplaces. The first one is affinity bias. Affinity bias is terrible. It's rampant. It's everywhere. Affinity bias is is humans like it because it makes us make friends with people that are similar to us where we have interest groups. For example, you might be a parent and part of parents groups. 
And so affinity bias is that, again, I'm not saying it's bad. It just is. It just Mm -hmm. is. We like to be around people that are similar to us. We like to hire people that are similar to us. So that's affinity bias. Mm -hmm. The second bias is in-group bias. In-group bias is, I've seen it appear in so many different ways in organizations. The the example I like to use for in-group bias so that we can all relate to is 2020 elections around the world all the time. There's an in-group and there's an out-group. I don't, it's not about your political groups. It's about or your political affiliations, it's like that affiliation could be so strong that you can't even have empathy towards the out group. Same mm. thing with sports teams. There's actually Manchester mm. United. They had a whole study around how people would not even help a person up that was rooting for a different team. So it could get really strong. And so it, it happens in organizations and it could be simple things like video games, like what video game do you play video games? Do you not? Okay. You're not in the end group. Or there's a company I worked with headquartered in Seattle. Um, if you're either you're an outdoors person or you're not, if you're not an outdoors person, they're not going to get the same exposure as, as a person that, that doesn't, that's not in the outdoors. So again, these biases are, are really crazy. The third one is confirmation bias. And this one I'm seeing a lot more of, especially because a lot of companies are trying to actively hire people who are different from them um, and bring some diversity in. Confirmation bias is you bring that that diversity in and these pe- the folks that come in, you're like, wait, they don't work like us. Oh, I, man, I knew this wasn't going to work out. I knew mm-hmm. this wasn't, they weren't what I, they weren't what I expected. I knew it. That's confirmation bias is you're already giving up on them or giving up, um, giving into biases like just a, just a few weeks into the job. And it happens all the time. Like you're confirming all these suspicions that you had. They're not even true. So mm-hmm. those are the three, again, affinity bias, in-group bias, confirmation bias. Excellent. Yeah. And the latter really sounds like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Right. Yeah. We're trapped in these ways of thinking. And often we don't even realize we are. It's hard to see that you're in a box when you're actually sitting inside of the box. In another interview, you said that you built your own business with the words give, but don't expect anything in return. Can you talk about that? Yeah. When I first started my business, I still had a full-time job and I was, I knew my dream was to to be on my own, but I wasn't really sure how to do that. I wasn't really sure how to make my business sustainable. And my coach at the time talked about just giving and and not without getting anything returned or not expecting anything in return. And she didn't give me that advice because she's like more of a traditional coach, but she's, what have you seen in your life that's working? And I'm like, I'm just giving, I'm giving, I'm being generous with my knowledge and okay, then why don't we keep doing that? And I got so mad at her because I'm like, that's not going to make me any money. And she's come back to me in about a year. Let's see what happens. And she was exactly right. What happens is, and I didn't even realize it. And I didn't do it for this reason. It was just like, it was a benefit of being generous as you're giving people free advice, as you're giving people free coaching, as you're doing favors for people and you're making them look good and you're making changes in your life, they are so thankful that mm. they want to give that back to you. And so it comes back, it might come back a year later in a different way, but it, I would say 80% of the time it comes back. It could come back from anything like a thank you card to a huge client. And I would say the first time that the first corporate client I ever had came back to me because I had done a favor for someone. 
And it would get, it wasn't something that was immediate. Was it something I expected? But that was how I got my first corporate client. And so I still work on that model. I don't ever expect anything in return. I can't do pretty much anything for free anymore, but I do people favors and but I don't expect anything in return. So th- that's an important thing. If you are just getting started, focusing on those relationships and that generosity before expecting to be off the ground tomorrow. And unfortunately in our society with things like TikTok and Instagram reels, everybody, the sticks are going to go viral tomorrow. We're going to have instant success, but that's not how this works. And again, that generosity, even folks that are big influencers, they even talk about how the generosity of responding to comments, the generosity of sharing content, like all those things is, is how they got where they are today. Beautiful. I, I very much also believe in this concept of generosity and paying it forward it has a huge influence, not only on our lives, but the lives of others on the collective. And with regard to the collective, I'd love to briefly talk about the bigger picture of this and why the work, the amazing work that you're doing is so important because our practices and the systems that we have in place can have a really undesirable impact on our culture. Can you point us to some of these undesirable outcomes if we don't better the actually what's happening, for example, in our corporations, organizations? and Yeah. yeah. If you don't make these shifts, it, it's you're just not going to survive. It's for every, I think it's like the stat is that there's for every job posting, there's no candidates. Like there's, I think it's like something like for every job posting, there are like, like half candidates available as, as there used to be. So it, it's really hard. There's, it's really hard to recruit. It's really hard to get people in the door. And the more and more that you stick with these dominant standards, you're just not going to be able to get folks in. There's more jobs than there are applicants. And applicants have two jobs to choose from for every job that's open. So they have choices. And so I think that's number one. I think number two, and I always hate tying it back to process or, or to profits, but um, yeah, it, it, it's going to impact you someday. And again, I, I think it, it's going to take some time, but there's also this whole social capital thing that's mm-hmm. happening where people can talk about you on, on social media. And so all of these things are going to suffer because again, we, we have what, five generations in the workplace right now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so you have to change, you have to adapt. Otherwise, your organization is just not going to succeed anymore. And this is also why what you mentioned before, real leadership is so important. And yeah, to come back full circle and and button this conversation up, can you expound a little bit on the real leadership, the being relatable, equitable, aware, and loyal? What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's the future of of how we need to be as leaders. It's basically, again, keeping up with the speed of work and and how the speed of work is changing. But it's it's different from, I spent a lot of time in large companies and leadership trainings, and we had these leadership archetypes, and they're like, innovative leader, strategic leader, and none of these were really focused on how we treat people. 
Because that's what real leadership is. It's like, how do we treat people so our organizations can flourish? And the first is being relatable to different types of people. You had talked about you moving around the world and and you being relatable to to different types of people in different countries and and me being able to be relatable to different types types of people and managers being able to be relatable to different types of people at all different levels in the organization. Equitable. Again, I was really sick of DEI just being separate over here like a side dish, being a real leader, equity is part of that and creating access and creating fairness on your teams naturally, right? As a way of living, as a way of leading is the second one. Aware, being aware of where you are, like where you need to grow, how your team perceives you, all those things. And then loyal. Loyal is interesting in that this is a hard one to establish too. There's not a lot of loyalty out there in teams. I don't mean by loyalty doesn't mean accepting mediocrity. It means that you are loyal to the mess of it all. Like right now, being loyal to how your employees are going to work. And that keeps changing. Like this morning, I was in a conversation about some people are still remote. Some people are still hybrid. Some people are trying to do other things. But just being loyal that this is going to shift back and forth and that being loyal to your employees that they may need some time off. Like there's a lot going on. So having that loyalty in the workplace to to people and processes. Mm, mm -hmm. Basically being deeply human and also connecting to the humanity in others, those that share this life with us. Latonia, there's one question I love to ask every guest, and that's about certain practices that may have enhanced their lives mentally, physically, or spiritually. Is there something that you do that has elevated your life and that you'd be willing to share with us? Yeah, spiritually, there's a there's a couple of things that I do. I think you're asking about rituals. I do a lot of somatic coaching, which which is really great for me too as the coach, where I could just stop with my clients and just do some breathing exercises and and reground reground ourselves in this crazy world. So that's one of the things I do. I do uh, meditation daily. I have a a ritual every day where I get up, work out. And also do my meditation. Yeah, I try to cook several times a week. And I think the third thing that, that I didn't say is just finding joy in my work. And that is so important, everyone. I, I think the cooking and the finding joy out of all those other things, those are the things that have been game changing for me. Just being able to cook a meal and take yourself away from the world and just really appreciate the vegetables around you and all the living things around you. And then just finding joy in the little things. Like mm-hmm. I do a lot of in, in podcast interviews and I do a lot of keynotes and finding ways to ha- to find joy in those things. Um, because that's where I'm spending my time and we need more joy in this world. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for these words of wisdom, Latonia. For people who want to connect with you or learn more about you, where can they do so? Yeah, so you could go to uh, leadingbelowthesurface.com. That's got a bunch of book resources. LatoniaWilkins.com is the website. And then you could also LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as Latonia Wilkins. That's probably my most active social network. Excellent. And I'll make sure to put all of that in the show notes. Latonia, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing from your expertise and viewpoints. Very important topic. How do we become better leaders? How do we create better places, spaces for people to collaborate and work? So again, thank you very much for being my guest today. Thank you very much for having me. Superhumanize. 
Accelerated Evolution. 